Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Let's continue exploring what Muskoka was like a century ago during that roller coaster decade known as the Roaring Twenties. Our last broadcast introduced a story of a precedent setting experiment that saved Muskoka's prized hemlock trees by airplane bombardment with poisonous powder of the millions of looper caterpillars devastating them. It was another Muskoka first use of aerial dusting of forests with toxic chemicals to save them from deadly infestation of insects because of the aesthetic appeal of trees to people. Until 1927, this was only done because of their commercial value to logging companies, keeping forests healthy so they could cut them down to make lumber and paper. This all began with an unprecedented caterpillar attack on Muskoka hemlocks in the mid-1920s. The despair of the district's many powerhouse summer residents, resort owners, and year-round residents who depend on our district's vacation economy triggered unrelenting pressure on Ontario's Department of Lands and Forests to respond to the crisis. People come to Muskoka for its scenic beauty, not devastated forests stripped naked of their foliage. In 1927 and 1928, that specter was unfolding right before everyone's despairing eyes, including those of shocked veteran foresters. Millions of hemlock loopers, caterpillars with insatiable appetites, were devouring the needles of Muskoka's majestic hemlocks virtually all of them. As it turned out, high-level lobbying by the powerful and mighty for government action was the easy part, including getting the Department of Lands and Forests to do something unprecedented. Pilots might fly low over open fields or untouched forests to to dust them with poison, but this dangerous precision bombing required hitting specific trees on islands and near humans at their lakeshore cottages and summer resorts. Dusting forests and field crops from low-flying airplanes was itself still in infancy. The toxic chemicals were in powder form. Aerial spraying of liquid chemicals as an advance in technology to curb infestations of destructive insects, what we're familiar with today, would not appear for another decade. In 1927, when the crisis hit, 
forest entomologists in Ottawa who coordinated their work with Ontario Lands and Forests staff saw the hemlock looper through a scientist's microscope and considered the panicking Muskoka property owners unscientific businessmen fixated on their property values and oblivious to how nature, left alone, sorts out food chain imbalances. But Muskokans, seeing the looper through a big picture telescope and treasuring their unique oases for rest and recreation, could not abide the detached passivity of the government's forest scientists. Their standoff only shifted because the government entomologists got orders from above. Political Ottawa heeded the chorus of the powerful from Muskoka. So, despite many conditions, Ottawa's forestry branch and the RCAF greenlighted bombing the bugs in Muskoka in spring 1928. Summertime Muskokan Sir Thomas White, who'd been Canada's finance minister throughout the First World War, now representing the prestigious and potent Muskoka Lakes Association, met privately with Ontario's Minister of Lands and Forests, William Finlayson. The minister agreed right away to purchase a special airplane to be used to dust the areas affected and wipe out the pest that has threatened the hemlock trees in Muskoka. He added $20,000 for such an aircraft to his department's mid-March 1928 supplemental estimates, which the legislature approved. In tandem, Ontario's forestry branch drew up plans for the aircraft's urgent use. The plane of choice for spreading the toxins in Muskoka was a de Havilland 61 or DH-61. The airplane nobody wanted for such a high-profile, high-risk mission was the Department of National Defense's Keystone Puffer, used just the year before in Nova Scotia's 1927 experiments. The puffer was unequivocally declared completely unsuited to forest dusting by everyone concerned. The director of Ontario's Air Service, Roy Maxwell, ordered the DH-61 from England, where it was manufactured. Despite having only one engine, considered a vulnerability for poison spreading operations, the large modern aircraft, first of this caliber for Ontario's Air Service, was much more powerful than the puffer and its payload far greater. However, the DH-61 was not only late arriving from England, it had been badly damaged in shipment and required major repairs. As well, it still had to be fitted with a custom-built hopper to hold the deadly dust. And given the hemlock looper's life cycle, had to start in June laying down the poison by flying low over Muskoka's hemlocks. By June 20th, the aircraft was still not ready. The hatching larvae were spreading fast. Cottagers and resort owners, having been promised complete dusting, looked and listened to empty silent skies. The only thing on the rise was their despair and anger. In early July, island resident Fred 
Gatewick, who the year before took his own initiative to spray poisons on his Burgess Island hemlocks, became adamant about the missing plane. A very large area of shoreline is well wooded with hemlock, and if these remaining trees are killed, he said, as hundreds of them were a year ago, it is going to ruin the region. When can we expect assistance from the government? Another Lake Joseph cottager with an especially confrontational nature, leading Toronto dentist F. Dentist F. J. Kappen, confronted Ontario's Deputy Minister of Lands and Forests over an aircraft that refused to fly. Looper gaining fast. Why delay the plane? Kappen had challenged in a July 12th telegram. The deputy minister reassured Kappen and others that the damaged plane was undergoing rust repairs and would probably be available early next week. However, as Laurentian University historian and Forest Authority Professor Mark Kuhlberg carefully reconstructs in his new book, Killing Bugs for Business and Beauty, this was wishful thinking on the deputy minister's Abbott's part. The disabled DH-61 had been transported up to Sault Ste. Marie for major repairs at the Air Service's base of operations there. Even once repaired, more time would still be needed while Canadian aeronautical officials certified the plane airworthy. Two weeks into July, with shill complaints from Muskoka now reaching a crescendo, desperate Zavitz made arrangements with Ottawa for a keystone puffer to drop his waiting arsenal of stockpiled toxic dust instead. The airplane nobody wanted because of its defects would carry out a first ever experiment with technology and biology. This mission would severely test a seasoned pilot's skill. Flying an aircraft badly designed for spreading toxic powder just above treetops. The pilot had to hit specified targets around human habitations in the crosswinds of onshore breezes and propeller air currents. As we shall see, this would prove more an experience than an experiment. After a brief station break, we'll see what happened next. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. Before the break, we reached the point where long-delayed aerial bombardment of hemlock loopers was supposed to begin. Because the Keystone Puffer airplane was entirely unsuited for aerial dusting, based on direct experience of pilots and foresters in Nova Scotia, National Defense, National Defense sent just one to do battle against the looper caterpillars in Muskoka. That immediately presented an entirely new problem. By this late date in the looper's life cycle, a number, of the puffer, a number of the puffer aircraft, given their limited load capacity, were needed to cover all the infected forests of Muskoka in time to deliver a deadly blow, 
alone plane simply could not cover the vast area. On top of that, because of the airplane's danger, the RCAF refused to provide even a single pilot. Deputy Minister Zavitz, now having committed himself to the puffer and having made so many promises to the Muskokans, was clearly in a quandary. He sent a desperate order to Provincial Air Service Director Maxwell, who in turn commanded G.R. Hicks, one of his pilots, to report for duty at Foots Bay on Lake Joseph's western shore, where the puffer would be turned over to him. Maxwell told Hicks nothing about the mission he was to fly. On July 16th, piloting the puffer to Foots Bay from Ottawa was none other than Flying Officer C. Bath, the same pilot who'd flown the aircraft in Nova Scotia's test flight dustings and knew firsthand its many shortcomings. His reality check briefing shocked Pilot Hicks. The Ontario Air Service pilot, no longer in the dark about the poison chemical nature of his upcoming flights and the puffer's inadequacies for looper warfare, fired off an urgent protest telegram to his boss. Ontario pilot Hicks had picked up news through the airman's grapevine. He'd learned that Dr. Degrees, a federal entomologist, said it was futile to dust after July 28th and that there was one month's work even with daily flights. Also, Bath told Hicks he would personally refuse to fly the dangerous buffer for this work. Success depended on pilots trained in dusting operations, which Hicks was not. At this juncture, Maxwell ordered a second of his pilots, E.J. Cooper, at Sioux Lookout to Foots Bay. He also tried to calm Hicks, telling him Cooper would replace him as early as possible. The larger de Havilland craft would not be available for the 1928 season because it still needed its custom-built hopper for the toxic dust. All the while, the influential men in Muskoka to whom the government had promised poisonous dusting in 1928 grew louder and more persistent. The trees were being destroyed, they emphasized, and Muskoka's value was depreciating considerably. And on another front in the same battle, the Ontario Air Service's dilemma was now truly staggering. More than 1,500 acres had to be dusted. With the puffer, that required 30 straight days of dry, windless weather. Without those ideal conditions, two months would be needed. Even if dusting by the de Havilland 61 had been possible, with its carrying capacity of one ton of powder per flight, it would have had to start have started July 1st, a date now long since passed, because by the end of July, the caterpillars stopped eating and would not ingest their toxic meal. Pilots have pride. They're not cowardly, but courageous. They rise to challenges. Pilot Hicks dutifully followed his orders and, as Kuhlberg says, faced the inherent dangers head on. He took the puffer for a test flight, which confirmed all the deficiencies he'd heard about. Yet he resolutely pressed forward at risk to his own life because he did not want to discredit the provincial air service. The next morning, rain washed out any dusting. 
But by afternoon, Hicks made two sorties, dropping 600 pounds of calcium arsenate on hemlock in the southern part of Lake Joseph, most on Dr. Kappen's land. His flights too high because he was trying to keep a margin of safety meant winds carried the poison dust out onto the lake where fish could ingest it instead. A repeat sortie the following day encountered weaker winds and the fast learning Hicks did not fly over the hemlocks but along the shoreline so that onshore breezes gently drifted the dust into the target trees, covering them in a thin white coating of poison. The next day he used his successful technique to side bomb hemlocks on Loon and Laurie Islands with 600 pounds of the chemical. But as soon as the hopper is opened, Hicks informed Maxwell, the dust pours in from it to the cockpit and the famous Luxor goggles are useless to keep it out of my eyes. Every day, the toxic dust stung Pilot Hicks' eyes and gave him severe headaches. The floats on the plane, he also reported, are absolutely wrong. She stalls at about 75 miles per hour and loses speed horribly on turns. Then Hicks discovered via the pilot grapevine that the Canadian Air Board had just decided to scrap all its Keystone puffers because it is suicidal to fly the machine on dusting operations. That was why the board sent a lone puffer and the RCAF not a single pilot. Pilot Hicks felt used and betrayed. On July 20, the air was humid and after he opened the hopper door, the poisonous dust again clouded around him, completely blinding Hicks and forming a pasty film on his goggles that he couldn't rub off, causing him to hit two trees with the pontoons. He survived and, thanks to his flying skill, got the machine down undamaged. He would not take a puffer up ever again. Then pilot Cooper, arriving from Sioux Lookout, took over. His first test run the next morning was a dusting over Chief's Island, owned by Colonel Douglas Mason, one of the most ardent authors of long letters about the imperative to kill the hem hemlock looper. That was followed by a second test, which convinced Cooper the puffer was unsafe. In landing, the plane became crippled. The dusting project was canceled only days into the operation. It was now so late in the caterpillar season anyway, that as the grease in Ottawa said, to try to shoot a pile of dust on the trees at this time of year is simply laying ourselves open to ridicule. Yet those watching from their lakeside properties for the airplane attacks on the hemlock looper were aghast the campaign had been aborted. The hot days of August 1928 did nothing to cool tempers of wealthy summer Muskokans and those running camps, marinas, or cottagers. Nor, based on what had transpired that July, were pilots of Ontario's air service keen about this project in any way. Only completion of the de Havilland, test flights, and reassuring experiences for the pilots reduced their intense opposition. Stressed 
fresh promises from Ontario's government about the 1929 aerial campaign starting early in the Looper's Caterpillar cycle helped calm property owners. But was the first ever chemical dusting of forests for aesthetic reasons a complete bust? Hmm, Professor Kuhlberg identifies, identifies several positive outcomes from 1928's bombardment campaign on the Muskoka Lakes. Pilot Hicks came up with a superior method for applying dust by flying close to trees along the shoreline so the onshore breeze could drift it evenly over them for a more effective and efficient distribution, which was also safer than flying low over the forest's uneven crown. Also, forest entomologists testing results of the July 1928 aerial campaign discovered even from these small-scale trials that young caterpillars readily succumbed to calcium arsenic, but older ones needed a much heavier dose. Even if that much dust could not be applied from the air, just getting the timing right with the larger de Havilland providing effective dusting earlier in the looper's life cycle would do the trick, hitting all caterpillars when they were young and vulnerable. Just before spring arrived, Ontario's Air Service declared its aircraft battle ready for bombing the looper in Muskoka with toxins. Uh, and this was a most welcome update for the, from the Ontario Forestry Branch because the scope of the problem with which it was now grappling had grown exponentially. It had come to light that while the most vehement concerns had been expressed by Lake Joseph property owners, cottagers and resort owners on other Muskoka lakes further north and west had been severely impacted too. Although 15,000 pounds of calcium arsenic was still available, left over from 1928, the government ordered another 15,000 because that year entailed a much larger coverage area. Some 35,000 pounds were distributed from the air over uh, 1,200 Muskoka acres of looper-infested hemlocks between June the 19th and July the 10th. At the end of 1929, Ottawa's entomologist degrees announced the Muskoka Lakes dusting may be considered a real success. Soon, similar aerial campaigns spread elsewhere in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia to preserve forests, not for commercial forestry reasons, once the only basis for bombing bugs, but now for aesthetic reasons alone. A decade later, Canada's chief entomologist, Arthur Green, explained to a, an international conference in Germany how Muskoka had developed into one of the most popular summer resort areas in Canada. The hemlocks and other trees, therefore, have a high aesthetic value because the hemlock looper population exploded in the 1920s and devastated Muskoka woods, Green added, an extensive airplane dusting project by the Ontario government, supervised and directed by officers of Ottawa's entomology branch was successfully carried out. For forest historian Kuhlberg, the heart of Green's message was his conclusion. This method of control proved effective and although costly, the value of the trees justified the expense. 
aesthetic reasons for saving forests had entered the equation because Muskokans forced it. Had it not been for the district's magnetic vacation land appeal, thanks to those very forests, and how the powerful and wealthy chose to become Muskokans because of that, this unique event would not have happened. It again put Muskoka in the vanguard, thanks to the outsized influence of Muskoka's wealthy summer residents demanding and getting an aerial dusting program, and because carrying it out under extremely difficult conditions produced aviation and aircraft improvements. A fitting Muskoka precedent in forest management was about saving trees because of their beauty. Thanks for listening. Producing this installment of Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka for Hunters Bay Radio is volunteer Jacob Snow Krieger. Talented Jacob is now a communications officer for the Township of Lake of Bays, but continues as a volunteer for our community radio station. I'm Patrick Boyer. Thank you.